Good morning, church. It's good to be with you today. My name is Ben Seaman. I serve on staff as our uh, lead minister. Welcome to week five. Believe it or not, we only have two weeks left. Week five of our fall teaching series, B, where we're looking at seven letters. Remember when people used to write letters? Seven letters that Jesus wrote to seven churches, giving them sort of a spiritual inventory. Here's what you're doing well. Here's where you need to grow. If you choose not to grow in this area, I will take away your lampstand, which is to say I will take away your influence with each other, the community, and even uh, the world. Before we dive into the wonderful, beautiful city of Sardis, I just want to celebrate a few wins. Hey, hey, give yourself a hand. We made it to November in 2020. Yes, you can clap, right? Yeah, who wants another hour of 2020? (laughs) Hey, but the sleep was good. Um, I want to celebrate some wins as we do typically the first Sunday of the month as to what happened last month. Um, We have a a thing around here called uh, Fridays at Fisk, or at least I'm just calling that right now. Uh, And so we have a great partnership with Fisk Elementary where we get to bless uh, the Fisk teachers, faculty, and staff. Uh, This happens the last Friday of every month. This is the why behind this is our pathway value to journey out, that what happens outside of the walls can be as equally, if not more important, as to what happens here. So if you want to know more about local and global uh, partners and opportunities, you can text the word out uh, to the 10-digit number uh, on your screen. And we'll make you aware of you know, our international trips that we'll be doing, uh, as well as more consistently uh, local opportunities, as well as you know, our, our in- international trips. Uh, we had 14 folks visit us uh, at RCC last month, most of which are watching online and uh, are choosing to come after a few weeks, after a few months, which is great. Five folks joined our church through Starting Point. Uh, as well as uh, five folks joined a life group, new, new people. Um, we got to celebrate Liam's uh, Yankees baptism and one new family unit gave for the first time. Yeah, you can, yes, yeah, celebrate. Yes, we, we need to clap. You'll know why when Jesus gives a charge to this church uh, to be vibrant. You think you're alive, but you're dead, right? Uh, let me ask you a, a, a question. Has, um, ha- have you ever, maybe you've done this, and that's okay, it's a safe place. Um, have you ever been invited by a friend, or maybe there's a lot of folks at our church that travel for work, um, where they say, hey, you've got to, you have to try out this restaurant. I grew up going there uh, before football games on the weekends. Uh, we, we, we celebrated milestones, births of our children, um, graduation, uh, pregnancy announcements. I mean, this place <clears throat> is so memorable to us. <clears throat> Excuse me. And you say, sure, I, I would be happy to go. I mean, this is, Ben, look, Everybody in the neighborhood goes here. I get it. You're going to buy. Let's see what happens. And you pull up to the restaurant. This is pre-COVID. And you walk in, and it's only about 20% full on a Friday night at 6.30 p.m. And you don't have the heart to tell your buddy, like, hey, man, how long ago? When's the last time you were here? Um, Well, you know, our kids went to college. About seven years ago, he's like, yeah, it was probably good seven years ago, but look, nobody's here now. Sometimes restaurants have um, the reputation of being really good for a season, and then, like always, uh, as management changes, and if you have different managers that have a different um, quality of 
of uh, perfection or different quality control, the food and the service can kind of go downhill. Or maybe uh, you invited a friend to your school and you said, hey man, like while you're in town, let me take you to my high school and in the gymnasium, I want to show you how awesome I was at my sport in high school. And so you take them to the gymnasium <clears throat> and you see all of these banners that are hanging from the rafters in the sport that you dominated in, right? So for me, that would have been, I didn't dominate in any sports. I played music because you don't have to sweat as much. But you look up in the rafters in all four years that you went to school, whether that's the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, or 2000s, all four years, the sport that you played, your team won state. But your buddy, <laughs> but your buddy asked, um, how come there hasn't been a banner that your school has won since you left high school? See, sometimes sports programs, athletic programs, have a reputation of being powerhouses. They, they, they draw kids in, right? And, and colleges bring in the money because of certain athletes they draw in. And they're good for a season, but they're not as competitive as they are now. This, my friends, is the church in Sardis. Sardis was a church that for a season had the best preaching, the best worship, the best family ministry, the best small group ministry. Everything was the best. And I know, I think sometimes in our Western mind, you know, we always want the best. But here's the thing about the church in Sardis. Some time had passed and not as many people fill the church pews or the church seats. Not as, you don't see as many little kids running around and moms screaming at them, don't run in the Lord's house, right? That doesn't happen as much because they used to be influential in their community, but they're not anymore. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Revelation. We made it to chapter 3, verse 1. If you don't have a Bible, you can download the Bible app in your smartphone and follow along. The reason why I bring a physical Bible, I don't, I don't need to because it's 2020. It's because I want you to develop a relationship with the text, to be familiar with the narrative and the meta-narratives of the Bible, and to be familiar where different books of the Bible are and understanding where different sections of the story come from. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, uh, Jesus writes this word to the church in Sardis. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wow, what a letter. I mean, can you imagine if Jesus said that about Rockingham Christian Church? And, and like every week, right, I say this, there's nothing worse, and, and I know a few folks that are in the church consulting business, there's nothing worse, there's nothing more awkward when that, um, that meeting has come to an end and the church consultant said, you think you're strong in these areas, but you're actually weak in these areas. And what you think you're weak in, that's actually your strength. And one of the hardest parts about being in church consulting work, you guessed it, you walk away and the church does nothing about it because nobody really wants to do the hard work. That's the church in Sardis. This graph that you're seeing is sort of a life church life cycle graph, meaning, uh, and, and I, um, I, I, I make, I guess you could say, or invite our staff to do this with their ministries. And so what this graph is, 
I stole this from a church consultant, by the way. What this graph shows is that every church is somewhere on this slope. And the tendency, like Sardis, the tendency with churches is everybody thinks that they're on the very, very top because we like the word sustained and health, especially in that order, right? The problem is we are all kinetic energy. We're all in motion. So that even though, like maybe RCC or the church in Sardis, maybe Sardis was, and they were for a season, at the very top of this graph. They were a church that had sustained health, which is really, really good. Jesus never prayed for big churches. He did pray for unified churches and for healthy churches. The problem is, and the, the challenge is, is that um, the church, as well as all of its ministries, are somewhere on this graph. You guessed it. It's a really hard, it doesn't have to be, but it's a really hard, awkward moment when you have to tell a staff person, you think you think your ministry is on a growth curve, but it's actually declining and it's almost on life support. Now, if you're mature enough to hear that, it, it's not the end of the world. There are things that you can do to give it life. The problem is a lot of churches don't want to take a really hard look at their ministry, and so they kind of float for 50 years of existence. They might baptize a few people in a decade, but that's about it. Jesus says to the church in Sardis, you think you're alive. You think you're at the top of this graph, but you're sort of floating around preservation, and you're even, some of you are even on life support. Here's a picture of Sardis. Let's take a trip. <clears throat> in Sardis, it was surrounded by beautiful mountain ranges. You will care about that in about 20 minutes. Uh, this next photo is a picture of the gym entrance. They, were very, they, carried, they cared a lot about their physique. The next photo uh, would be the bath houses next to the gym. So after you get your workout on, you could take a hot, cold, or lukewarm. That's a word we'll talk about in two weeks, I believe. A lukewarm bath. Attached to this in another corner of the gym was one of the largest Jewish synagogues. Why do I tell you that? Because in Sardis, you had a very diverse city. You had folks that were Greco-Roman, and you had Jewish people. You had folks with Roman citizenship, which only matters if you get in trouble with the law in terms of your rights to a fair trial. Uh, and then they had a ton of Jews that were not necessarily Roman citizens. This is their temple of Artemis that was in most cities uh, in the first century. Massive structure. You can see just beyond the temple uh, where they're protected by incredibly high hills and mountain ranges. Uh, the last photo I want to show you, which is particularly interesting to this letter, it's called the Royal Road. And it was built um, by King, the Persian King Darius. It goes from Sardis all the way down to uh, Susa. It's about 1,700 miles long. About every 15 miles, there was sort of a water, watering hole, and you could change out horses to get on another horse to continue your travel. Depending on how many kids you have and how many times they have to stop for McDonald's, it takes about a week to go from point A uh, to point B. This is one of the, the largest walkways, tr trade routes in the first century, uh, the Persian king Darius uh, created it so that communication could go a lot faster uh, in the Roman 
empire. So Jesus says to this church, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You think your marriage is thriving, but I've spoken to your spouse. You think your church is doing well, but I've talked to your elders and staff. You think your job is going well, but I talked to your boss. And in chapter uh, 3, verses, um, in, in Revelation 3, verses 1 through 6, Jesus continues, uh, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits uh, of God and the seven stars. Uh, I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished. That's going to matter in just a second. In the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Hold on to it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, right? And you will not know at what time I'll come for you. The word that Jesus has, I think, for this church is to be vibrant. It's to wake up. All right, stop walking around like the walking dead. I want to hear more babies crying in the worship service. I want to see more mamas running down because their kids aren't listening. Uh, They're running down the hallways. I want to see life. I want to hear loud conversations in the lobby. I want to see people drinking good coffee. I want to see a church that is alive. You think you're alive, but you're actually dead. So let me ask you a question that's going to frame the sermon today. And here's the question. What do you do when you have a faith that really isn't a faith worth having? What do you do when you have a faith that you sense is, is really not worth having? Sort of like a holiday fruitcake right here. You, you take this. No offense if you like fruitcake. Some of us have faces that, faith that we're like, I don't even know if I want this faith, let alone giving it to somebody else. Sometimes I think when we have a faith not worth having, it's because we've become disappointed with life. Hello, 2020. 2020 is the year of shattered dreams, right? Uh, my wife and I were supposed to go on our 10-year anniversary. It's a thing that she said, I'll marry you if you get me a corgi and take me to Ireland on our 10-year anniversary. So I'm, I'm taking a rain check on that. Hope, hopefully there's more grace in that demand than, than, than I realize. Yeah, who among us uh, New Year's Eve thought we would be here, a that, a, that we made it to November, but that 2020 would be what it is. Sometimes our faith isn't worth having because we're just disappointed. We're tired, right? And one of the first things I said a couple weeks ago, our giving stops, our attendance stops, our serving stops, our uh, commitment to our life group stops because, well, for a, mi- a myriad of reasons that honestly, we're just kind of disappointed with how life turned out. Secondly, I think it's because we use blank to make up our pain, right? We use blank to make up our pain. And I said this almost like every week, but like there's a reason why alcohol sales are through the roof, right? And, and what do we tell ourselves, right? Like, ah, you've had a hard week. It's, it's the Rona year. Like, take another drink. It doesn't matter. You're home. You can get a little tipsy, right? Maybe this will hit home more than the alcohol, it's okay. You make enough money. Like your spouse isn't going to know that you spent $80 on Amazon Prime. Just go ahead and buy that thing, right? It's just, whatever it is to numb the pain, right? It, 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 it you know, and here, I'll just be real with you. Like sexual intimacy is a struggle with a lot of couples. 
I mean, you're just trying to like, A, not kill each other, B, make sure your kids get somewhat of a decent education and get them to wherever they need to go. Sexual intimacy is not really a high priority, so it's okay. Your spouse isn't in the room. They're, they're, they're in bed. Just pull out your phone. I mean, you wouldn't look at that, you know, pre-COVID. To just, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You're dead. I asked my brother uh, a couple years ago, Many of you know our, our story through uh, uh, addiction and substance abuse, sort of a part of our family of origin that spans several generations. And, and I just asked my brother Nathan, he's a lead pastor uh, down in Charlotte, and I said, um, like, you, like, like, what if a family like us, a mom and a dad and three boys, high school and Graham would have probably been in elementary, almost middle school. Like, what would you think of a family that walked into your church, they got super involved, and you later found out that dad was addicted to cocaine, that mom was codependent, that every Friday night when uh, one or two of them got hammered beyond their own sobriety, F-bombs would be dropping, threatened to uh, call the lawyers, and yet, like, the husband played drums for your church like my dad did, and the mom did this, my mom did the Sunday school thing uh, on Sundays when churches did more of a Sunday school structure versus life group. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, that's, that's about the average family we have at our church. Why? <laughs> because it's so easy to like put on a smile and come to church and do the ritualistic thing, but not really deal with what's going on in here, Right? Like, I think you're more concerned about your behavior than Jesus is. Jesus never said you're a Christian, you're a non-Christian. He went, he, went more, he went more drastic than that. He said you're dead or you're alive. That's it. You can label yourself however you want after that, but Jesus said you're either dead or alive. You have a pulse or you don't. So what do you do when you have a faith that isn't worth having. I will tell you, I'm stealing these words from Jesus. Put this in your phone, write this down. You need to know this and step into this. Number one, Jesus says, wake up, wake up. Stop assuming that you and I were okay. I told you that Sardis is a well-fortified city, didn't I? Yes is the answer. <laughs> then not only did they have massive walls that were difficult to penetrate, they were sort of, um, the city was settled into very high mountain ranges, kind of think like Estes Park, the Rocky Mountains. And there's a bit of <clears throat> arrogance, right? Maybe that we felt on September 10th, 2001, right? Nobody's going to attack us on our soil. And so, <laughs> So the, the, the folks of Sardis thought nobody is going to penetrate us. Not only do we have incredibly high mountains that, were, that are surrounding us, but we also have a well-fortified city. What do you mean, Jesus says, wake up? Well, I'll tell you why. Around 546 BC, the Persians are trying to invade the city of Sardis. Now, last week I said, if you're going to invade Sardis or Pergamum, you better pack a lunch. It's going to take a while. And so the Persians were very um, disheartened and frustrated. How can we penetrate this city? And, and no kidding, like something, uh, out, something out of like, you know, a, a comedy or a movie, um, Mighty Python, the Holy Grail, that's what I'm thinking of. 
a Persian soldier looks up as what might be the equivalent of a watchtower, and the Sardesian, well, just that's maybe what I made up that word, the Sardesian uh, military guy, his helmet falls off. And you just hear the clank going down the wall, hits the ground, and sort of rolls out, you know, maybe a few feet from the wall. And the Persian uh, soldier, the enemy, said, wait a minute, wait, let me see what happens. Now, I don't know what it's called. I've got preacher hands. I don't know much about architecture. But somebody came out, maybe the back door, another soldier, picked up the helmet and went inside. You know what happened that night while the Sardesian people were asleep? The enemy attacked and overtook the city. Jesus says, wake up. Now, that would be embarrassing if it happened once. (laughs) It would be humiliating if it happened twice to the city. And you know what? It did. It did twice while the city of Sardis was asleep. The enemy came in and overtook the city. Jesus isn't just using words for words' sake. He's He's aware that this church was decimated, the city was decimated, even though it had an incredible, incredibly great military defense but their uh, system, but their humanity kicked in when what? They had to rest, and the enemy came in. In the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 13 through 16, in the message, which is a, it's a paraphrase by a pastor by the name of Eugene Peterson, Paul writes these words, No prolonged infancies among us, please, <laughs> will not tolerate babes in the woods, small children who are an easy mark for imposters. God wants us to grow up to know the whole truth and to tell it in, ready, social media world, in love, <laughs> like Christ would do, right? We take out, we take our lead from Christ, who is the source of everything that we do. He keeps us in step with each other. His very breath and blood flow through us. I love the message paraphrase. Great book for uh, devotional reading. Nourishing us that we will grow up healthy in God, robust in love. What In part, what I think Paul is talking about is there is a sexiness, there is a seduction to life. There's an arrogance to life, right? We're the city of Sardis. No one's going to overtake us, right? Like, we're Americans. We have an incredible defense system, defense system, and we do. And yet 9-11 happened. My family's fine. We're young. We're healthy. And someone dies of a heart attack. We do all the right things, and yet car crashes still happen to us. I I know that um, sometimes we process faith as I'm a mature Christian when I know a lot of facts about the Bible. But I don't know if you're familiar with Satan and how he works and the enemy, how he works. He could care. Like demons have a higher Christology, which is to say a view of Jesus than most people that go to church. Like they know who, who Jesus is. Right? That's why he has dominion over them when he speaks. They know who Jesus is. So the enemy could care less how much Greek and Hebrew and the narrative of the Bible you know. The, the, the enemy is not after your mind. He's after your heart. He, he, he's after when your spouse goes to bed. What do you do in those quiet moments? When you're tempted to cheat at work, right? When you're tempted to cheat at school, 
or be a jerk to one of your friends and social media students. He could care, he could care less how much you know because he already knows it as well. And there's a seduction that we have to pay attention to. There's a slow fade, right? There's a slow fade that happens from, I would never do this. I would never see myself doing this to maybe 15, 20, 30 years down the line. You say, as I have said this too, I'm not perfect. I can't believe that I've done this. You can judge me. That's fine. I won't read your email. (laughs) I like Edgar Allan Poe. Can I just say that? He's the inventor of the short story, and I'm going to tell a quick version of the short story. He wrote a short story called The Cast of Amontillado. I hope I pronounced that right. Basically, it's a very fine, expensive wine. And the story goes, there's tension between two people, and they want to take revenge and have vengeance on one another. One of the guys really likes wine. The other guy owns this wine, and he goes to the guy and says, I have a hundred and 30 gallons of this stuff in my cellar downstairs in my basement. Would you like to come over and have a drink with me? And the guy says, sure, wind down Wednesday. I'm there, right? And so he goes to the house and he takes him down to the cellar and they begin drinking and they begin drinking and they begin drinking to the point where the guy who likes this really fine, expensive wine gets so drunk that the owner of the house puts him inside, I think it's called a niche or a niche. It's, it's uh, in the old, old architecture where they carve out part of the wall. Sort of if you go to a museum, that's where like the drinking fountain is. He, puts, he, he, he shackles him up, puts him inside of the wall, and then the guy begins to wake up. He begins to sober up, and he's terrified by what he sees. The other guy is on the floor building brick by brick, stacking brick by brick by brick. And the guy who's coming out of his drunkenness begins screaming for his life. And the guy eventually walls his enemy in and he laughs as the poor guy screams out for help. Life is seductive. We find ourselves in places that we... Can you imagine right? Of all the places, like if you're that guy, wow, this is how it's going to end. This is how it's going to go. How could I be so foolish? Right? The enemy's after this, not so much this. Although he is after this, that's more of an academic college thing. Uh, but he's always 100% after this. This is why Jesus asked Pharisees, like, why is your, not your head, but why is your heart so stubborn? Right? Because Jewish thought believed that the, the heart was the seat of emotions as well as decision-making. Jesus says, you got to wake up. You have to wake up. You think you're alive, but you're dead. So what happens when you have a faith that isn't worth having? Number one, Jesus says, wake up. Number two, strengthen what remains and is about to die. This is like sort of the equivalent of getting that horrific phone call of a loved one being in a car crash and they're being rushed to the ICU and you have to get down there pronto. Now, maybe they don't, maybe they don't have um, brain trauma, but maybe they've like broken 10 ribs or shattered their femur, broken their arm or whatever it is. 
all that you know is they're still alive, but they're, what do we say? They're barely hanging on. Now, what's the difference between your child or your grandchild going to a pediatrician, right, for a regular checkup versus your child being in the ICU unit? I'll tell you the difference. It's heightened awareness. If you're in the IC unit, things are serious. And sometimes, a lot of times, when we get those kinds of phone calls or when big catastrophic events like COVID-19 or 9-11 happen, one of the first things we do until we can wrap our mind around it is that we're in denial. And Jesus says, your church is getting ready to die. You're in the IC unit, and you're sitting outside in the lobby wondering, where's half my arm? Blood's gushing out. You're about to die. Wake up. Jesus says, stop pretending. Put on a smile if you go to church, but you got to talk about what's going on in here. And Jesus is trying to alert them. He's trying to alert you. Wake up. Your spiritual life is in the IC unit. You're not at your primary care doctor. This isn't a uh, flu shot situation. You're touch and go right now. You need to wake up. You need to come to terms with life, not as you want it to be, but how it actually is. What do you do when you have a faith that isn't worth having? Jesus says, wake up. Jesus says, strengthen what remains and is about to die. Thirdly, Jesus says, remember. Now, oftentimes when we go through struggle or we want to learn something, we want to learn something new. Having a tough time in our marriage, let's read a marriage book. Tough time in our finances, let's read a finance, financial book. All those things are fine. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What Jesus is talking about is do not remember something new or learn something new. Remember something old. Remember, listen, church, remember something old. When you feel like your faith is a faith that isn't worth having, remember something old. Do you remember when you gave your life to Christ, how vulnerable you were? Maybe you, maybe you cried. Do you remember what it was like the day you were baptized by a parent, a, a youth minister, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague? Like, do you have, um, do you have a, a favorite book of the Bible or a verse that you read when you feel like your faith is a faith worth, worth, uh, not worth having? Right? I love to read 1 John where John says God's love is lavished on us. I feel like it's like a gospel shower where the love of God is raining down on us. For me, my song that I go to is a song by Rich Mullins called The Love of God. The very first lyric is this. There's a wideness in God's mercy that I cannot find in my own. Those things encourage me. But those are not new things. And so often what we're tempted to do is when we flirt with the gospel, it's, okay, I became a Christian, I learned the 101 stuff, now it's time to move beyond the cross. The gospel does not invite us to move beyond the cross, but to go deeper into it. Remember something old. What, 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 what motivated or moved you to fall in love with your spouse or to ask them to marry you? What motivated or moved you to be swept away by the overwhelming love of God where you sang songs and actually met them in your bones? Jesus says, remember something old when you have a faith that isn't worth having. 
The fourth thing that we can do when we have a faith that isn't worth having is to obey it. Now, the word uh, keep in in Revelation chapter 3 is basically a visualization of what a quarterback and a wide receiver, uh, what they do. I don't know that what they do because I'm a Bengals fan. But apparently, there's a quarterback that can throw a football, and the job of the wide receiver is to what? Catch it? Nope. Receive it. Receive it. It's not enough to catch it because the the stinking refs can be like, that's not a catch. Like, anyway, side note, what is a catch? Have we figured that out in the NFL? So they catch the ball, but what's the point that you just caught it? Big deal. So what? You also have to bring it into the numbers. You have to receive it. There are too many Christians that know a lot about God that can catch a football, but they don't receive it. They don't receive the gospel. And we need to know God's word 100%. Please don't get Please don't understand me. misunderstand me. We need to receive the gospel. We need to catch the gospel, but we also have to receive it. When you receive something, you give it permission to what? Transform you. Right? When you have a faith that isn't worth having, you need to receive it. Yeah, you need to believe it, but you also need to receive it. Go back to like the meals and movement where Jesus ate with people. That's all, uh, that's all receiving kind of language. When you receive something, you're willing to invite somebody over for dinner. Consider the words of Jesus. What do you do when you have a faith that isn't worth having? Number five, you need to repent. Repent, right? It's such a beautiful word. It's a way out. It means to change your mind, but it also means that you can come home, that grace keeps the light on, that God is not out there looking for you to be defined by the worst day of your life. He invites you to come home. Every week at uh, RCC during this series, uh, we introduce you to someone that is stepping into one of these B values. And I want you to watch Janira's story. Hi, church. So how following Jesus has helped me make my daily life vibrant has been through faith, obedience, and love. Jesus is the greatest example of that obedience to our Father. And so um, I wanted to read from John chapter 15, verses 9 through 12, and um, it depicts that. It says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in His love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Jesus has given us the greatest example of love when He died on the cross. But also, of the fulfillment of the promises of the Lord, of the fulfillment of the Word of God, when He resurrected and ascended into heaven. That is where my hope lays. My hope lays in Jesus, and every day I rest in that hope. It is He who fills me with joy, peace, and the love that I need in my daily life to continue giving to others. Not only my family members, 
but to everyone um, around, wherever he takes me. And also seeking to serve, to serve others, love others as he's loved us. Thank you, Janira, for sharing uh, your story with us. Uh, Jesus closes the letter uh, by talking about the reward of vibrancy. In verse 4, Jesus says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like me, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Jesus says, in reference to the royal road, that there are some of you that are walking on, go ahead, yep, there are some of you that are walking on this road from Sussex to Sardis, and some of you have walked off the road. And some of you are walking in soiled clothing. Isaiah says that our righteousness are as filthy rags, that we go to church, we say we're Jesus followers, but at the end of the day, being a Christian means morality. As long as I can be a good person, then I'm going to get into heaven. Nope, good people don't make it into heaven. Righteous people make it into heaven. And what Jesus is saying, you don't have to walk seven days in soiled clothes, right? That's a great visualization. Stop trusting in your own morality, in your own ethics, I will give you a white robe. Theologians call this a great exchange. We get the righteousness of Jesus. He gets our sin. There's, there's a long road to walk. And I just love this photo. It's so depictive of our lives. And it's so easy just to fall, fall back, let Jesus and a few of his followers keep going and then we just quietly walk off the road. Jesus says, church, you think you're alive, but you're dead. You were hopping 15 years ago. Nobody's showing up. Why? Our church is in a great location off of 93. So what? You want to know why churches die? Because of the culture of the churches. They're not vibrant anymore. They're the walking dead. Jesus says, wake up. Wake up. Address what's in the ICU. Remember something old. Be obedient and repent. And I will walk with you if you walk with me. Let me pray. Jesus, thanks so much for this beautiful challenge to be alive, to be vibrant. And I thank you that you use language like um, someone is either alive or they're dead. And I, I, I honestly... I'm not sure where a lot of folks would say they are at. And maybe sometimes we, we're dead and we're just afraid to admit that to you. And I, pr I pray that if, if anybody is dead or feeling dead, that they would communicate that to you, Jesus. Jesus, we thank you so much. This royal road is such a great picture and a metaphor for the long, faithful obedience in the same direction during this life. Jesus, I pray for our vibrancy at RCC. I pray that if you were to write a letter to us, you would not say, um, in 2020, you were vibrant, but 10 years down the road, you were dead. God, help our mission be to reach people, not just fill up buildings and rooms, but to reach people for the gospel, to have people that are willing to have those conversations where all of eternity hang in the balance, and for us to have the, the guts and the trust to share our faith with other people. 
and that they can join the journey with us. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.